First Chronicles chapter 19, if you'll join me there as we continue our journey through the Old Testament together, looking at the life of King David here uh, from the account of Chronicles and particularly how, again, remember the writer of Chronicles is seeking to encourage the uh, post-exilic Jews who have returned uh, back to Jerusalem after a time in captivity there for 70 years. Again, a lot of the same things that we saw record of in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings are addressed here in more of a summarized form in the writings of the the Chronicles, uh, but uh, from a specific purpose, really trying to focus particularly on the southern kingdom of Judah and following the messianic line of Jesus. And so the things that are addressed are meant to be really a, an encouragement of God's faithfulness despite human failure uh, because those returning exiles needed encouragement to know that God was faithful and though they had come through a time of difficulty and failure on their own that, that God was still faithful through those things and that God's faithfulness is not thwarted by the mistakes of mankind and the, the errors that we make ourselves and problems we create for ourselves so again just kind of that focus being drawn in on these things. Chapter 19 records for us now a, a time when uh, David sought to show compassion and kindness and, and a misunderstanding took place. It tells us here in chapter 19 verse 1 that it happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died and his son reigned in his place. And David said, verse 2, I will show kindness to Hanan the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. So uh, at a time when there's a loss of a loved one, David becomes aware uh, that in this uh, nation of Ammon, again, uh, people who uh, apparently at some point in time, David has some level of connection to uh, the father, the individual who has died here, we're told of in verse one, uh, that it was Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon who died. And it seems that David had some level of connection to him. We don't know exactly what that was, but David makes mention in verse 2 that uh, the the kindness of Hanan uh, was shown to him in his own life and that he had experienced a level of kindness and maybe help in some way, whether it was politically or in some other capacity. Uh, some measure of kindness was shown to David. Maybe it was during a time when David was in his wanderings in the wilderness and kind of living hand to mouth and day by day was trying to survive. We're not exactly certain, but something was done to show grace and kindness to David. And so now as this man died, who has shown kindness to David, David just feels prompted in his heart to want to reciprocate that grace and that kindness to his son and to his family who are grieving at this time as they go through this difficulty of the, the loss of the king there. And I think certainly some great examples here being demonstrated by David, you know, it's just first and foremost that, you know, when some level of kindness has been shown to us in our lives, uh, it, it certainly should be our responsibility and stewardship to look for opportunities to show kindness to other people in return. And that's really what you find David doing here. David remembering the kindness that was shown to him, appreciating how somebody was gracious to him and kind to him in a given, given situation and season of 
of his life. Uh, he's looking to kind of pay that back now. He's looking for an opportunity. He wasn't someone who just enjoyed receiving God's grace. He was somebody that also enjoyed giving God's grace. And I think for all of us, it's important that we don't forget and kind of brush aside too quickly the times in our life where maybe uh, we were on the receiving end of somebody being very gracious to us, very kind to us, where they stepped in, helped us out, that we wouldn't kind of just forget that. And then when opportunities present themselves before us to be able to maybe show kindness to someone else or to help another individual or be gracious, that we would kind of just gloss over that and move on because we're so caught up in our own activities. And certainly David could have kind of just done that. He was a king. He was busy. He was handling the affairs of a kingdom. Uh, but yet David here pauses and he realizes, you know what? Hey, this is a God-given opportunity to be able to extend kindness now. This, this is set before me as an opportunity to be able to reciprocate back some of what was shown to me. And so because of that, uh, he mentions here in verse 2 that he wants to show kindness uh, to Hanan, the son of Nahash, uh, because his father had showed kindness. And the way he did it was it says he sent some ambassadors or messengers there to comfort him regarding the death of his father. And again, just a great example of David here. When somebody is dealing uh, with something like what's described here, whether it's maybe the death of a loved one or maybe even just some major loss in their life or some major hard transition, that is a very difficult time for people to navigate. Any of us who've gone through the process of the death of a loved one know that that's a really dark, hard, challenging time to navigate and walk through. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of changes and transitions that come with that. If it's not that, even just times when maybe we have gone through maybe just a major loss in some other capacity, maybe it's not the death of a loved one, but maybe it's just some major loss or something has just kind of fallen through the cracks and we're dealing with disappointment or some major change. Those are really difficult times for people. And those, if you need a little insight here, are great occasions to show kindness to people those are great occasions to step into that situation don't pass up the opportunity and demonstrate kindness and offer comfort uh, those are times when you want to take advantage of that and do those kind of things and uh, doing something practical to show loving support is always way more valuable than just articulating those things with your words because you notice what it says david did it doesn't say david just sent a hallmark card and said hey sorry to hear about your loss uh be praying for you and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that in and of itself but it says there in verse uh two that david actually did something practical uh, he sent some messengers there uh, so there was some cost involved with that. It would cost money to send somebody from Jerusalem all the way over to the land of Amman. Uh, there was some personal uh, investment in that. There was some practical uh, you know, activity that took place. And you know what? Um, again, I'm not negating the value of being able to send somebody a nice text or to write them a letter or send them a card or even make a phone call. All those things have value. Uh, but I tell you, there is nothing more impacting than when you actually do something practical, something practical to just demonstrate love, to demonstrate kindness. When you actually personally get involved, you know, you, you, you kind of you show up, if you would. 
You show up and you demonstrate that you care in a practical way where people in a tangible way can see you've done something practical uh, that's meaningful to them. Those are the kind of things that really carry weight and impact. And I appreciate the example of David here. He didn't just, again, send a messenger in a sense to, to kind of bring a message. He actually sent people there. He sent some of his servants to go and to try and bring some comfort on behalf of himself and to try and bring some uh, assistance and support in a time that was very difficult. Now, uh, what's sad to see in the case here that takes place is David sends these messengers to go bring comfort during the death of the king. And it says, verse 2, going on, David's servants came to Hanun in the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him regarding the death of his father. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, to the new king, the prince who just took over, do you think, verse 3, that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come to you to search out and to overthrow and to spy out the land? So take notice what happens. Here he has some servants who are around him Again, maybe they're kind of just uh, recognizing, okay, there's been a transition of power here. The prince has just taken over, so maybe if we can do something to impress him, we can get a good position in the cabinet now as the uh, new king is reigning upon the throne. So kind of this attitude of suspicion arises among some of the servants, and they now bring these speculations before uh, Hanan as the new king, and, and they say to him, Look, do you, do you really think that David sent these men over here, these servants, to just come and bring you comfort? Do you really think David actually cares that much or has compassion? So they kind of speculate about the motive behind these servants who've come, and they begin to kind of misjudge them in the sight of the new king here, and they speculate on their motives. They say, look, they didn't really come here to provide comfort. These are, this is just a plot to come and spy out what's going on in the kingdom here to make an attempt to set up the stage so that they can come and overthrow you. This is just preying upon your misfortune. They're just using this situation to step in to try and do something for their own self-interest. And notice this attitude of suspicion translates into the sin of suspicion where what these messengers start doing here is they just begin to start misjudging people's intentions and speculating on the motives of why David was doing this. And as a result, they're completely misinterpreted. And what David is seeking to do that is genuinely kind and good is completely misinterpreted as wrongdoing when David's not even guilty of doing what he's being accused of here. But it's just a complete misjudgment, those suspicious unfortunately, end up missing out on a blessing, right? Because they could have just enjoyed the blessing of being comforted, but their sin of suspicion just makes them miss out on the blessing. It also causes them to kind of mistake in misjudgment what people's true intentions are. And worse than that, they then start to misguide all kinds of other peoples. We're going to see as the chapter unfolds, not just the king, but I mean, just the, the whole kingdom and other people on top of it. I mean, this creates an entire all-out war, just because of speculation, just because of an attitude of suspicion, uh, it causes perception to be wrong. And again, this is a perfect example here that perception is not reality. I hate when people make that statement. 
Oh, perception is reality. If you perceive it's that way, I'm telling you it's that way. I'm telling you that's dumb. That's dumb. The only person that has proper perception is God. Human beings do not have proper perception. What human beings have is a problem with misperception because we're all sinful. And sometimes our sinful nature makes us speculate about things or, or be suspicious in our nature about people. And we're kind of innately sometimes critical and we tend to kind of think the worst of people. That's why the Bible has to tell us that love, God's love, 1 Corinthians 13, believes all things, hopes all things. Again, why does it say that? Because human nature doesn't believe all things. We don't hope the best in people. We always think the worst and believe the worst and speculate and are critical and we misjudge people all the time. We're perpetually guilty of that because that's what we do by nature. So God has to tell us that the opposite is the way that he would want us to operate by his spirit. And here we see the great detriment that's caused here because of their personal perception on a person, David, and the matter at hand is not the reality, and it leads to all kinds of problematic things in this chapter here. And this is just a great reminder for us to kind of keep our own hearts in check. I'll tell you, an attitude of suspicion is a very dangerous thing because it can lead to the sin of suspicion that causes us, like these people in the chapter here, to produce problems where we start judging people's intentions wrongly. Oh, I know why they really did that. Or, I mean, I know, he, I know why they're really saying that. And it causes us to kind of, again, put on like a, a rose-colored glasses, and so then everything we see, we see through that particular lens or shade towards that person. And we can make some real mistakes. And look, e- even if something has happened in the past, let me, let me caution you, be very, very careful because this is when we're prone to it more. We have one bad experience with a person or a few bad situations with people and then we take that and whatever you know, shade of glasses that is, we just then look at everything through that lens. And so then we always see something shadier. We always perceive something that we shouldn't perceive And we can make some really big royal mistakes that way. And not only miss out on things ourselves, but more than that, we can really misjudge people and mischaracterize people. And we kind of then say that kind of stuff and we put those ideas in other people's minds. And now all of a sudden here, you got these messengers saying, look, you can't believe that he's really sincere. This is just, you know, some deceptive trick and Unfortunately, Hannon, being young and immature, shows his own immaturity, instead of taking the opportunity to say, hey, let me clarify this for myself. That might be a good idea, right? Instead, he just instantly takes what was fed to him by the words of somebody else about a situation, and he instantly just buys into it 100%, and then he acts upon what someone else said in their judgment about another person. Boy, who's not been on the guilty end of maybe doing that on occasion where you just instantly act upon, well, they said, so therefore, well, I mean, by golly, if they said it, it's got to be true, right? I mean, that's the way we operate as human beings. Well, they said, and so therefore, if they said, I'm just going to act upon that and run with it and kind of determine who's guilty in regards to that here. So they just say these things, and it says, verse 4, look at it, Hanan took David's servants who came with a, a great intention, wanting to help, and it says he shaved them, cut off their garments uh, in the middle at their buttocks, that's never a nice thing to do, and sent them away. 
And then some went and told David about the men and he sent to meet them because they were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. So what they do here is an incredible insult. I mean, you have to understand, David sends men as representatives of him as the king. So again, this is, he's sending ambassadors as a king from his kingdom and they completely misjudge what David is doing. And then they horribly shame and insult these ambassadors that David has sent to them. And what, it says literally that they shave their, their beards here, you know, cutting them, cutting off a portion of their beards. And then literally, you know, just expose them, their backsides by cutting their garments off, just trying to utterly humiliate and disgrace and embarrass them. And you have to understand in that culture there, uh, you know, a, a beard in the Orient, in the ancient culture was hugely important to them because that was a sign of masculinity because men could grow beards and women couldn't. So to do something, we would think, well, shave your beard. What's the big deal about that? Well, I mean, I can see the cutting off the pants in the backside, but you have to understand to them, that was culturally, that was a huge insult. That's why they did it. It was a way of kind of like saying, you know, you know, we, we cut into your masculinity. We did something to overcome you. You're weak and, and, and unable to defend yourselves. I mean, you have to understand in your mind, this would kind of be like, if I could draw a uh, comparison, I mean, this would be like us sending our secretary of state and a few, um, associates to another country and them uh you know stripping them naked and making them walk out across the airfield on public television to get back into the airplane i mean that would that'd be like the the national insult that this is here i mean this was a gross insult and and here again to make add insult to injury they're coming with good intention and they're completely misjudged and treated this way horribly, but again, it's also a kind of fitting reminder that sometimes even when we may be doing what's good, we may still at times be misunderstood. We may still at times, even we're trying to do what's good, not only be misunderstood, but even be mistreated badly. You know, the greatest example of that in humanity, that's called Jesus. Jesus came into this world. He was completely innocent. He only came to show love and do what was good and help other people. And was Jesus not misunderstood? He was misjudged. He was falsely accused. And then he was horribly treated, disgraced. I mean, even spit upon and, and crucified. So we know what they do in this world with a perfect person. They misunderstand them, they falsely accuse them, they spit on them, they beat them, and they put them to death. That's what happens if you're perfect, if you're innocent and perfect. I'm far from that. So I have to understand to some degree if that happened in measures to Jesus, that there may be times where as representatives of Jesus and when we're just trying to do what's good and right, that we may unfortunately just get misunderstood once in a while. And people may judge us wrongly and then do something very insulting and hurtful and painful in our own lives, even as happened to David's servants here. It's kind of just par for the course that takes place at times. But even after being severely mistreated, notice David says to them when he finds out about this, verse 5, it says he, he sent out to them knowing they were greatly embarrassed and humiliated. And he sent men to meet them, being greatly ashamed. And, and he said to them as their king, wait there at Jericho until your beards have grown back, he says, and, and then return. 
So I appreciate David's words there. He very compassionately, again, comes out to these men and tries to send word to them. He knows what's taken place. And first he wants to comfort them before he deals with those who've done what's wrong. So he sends out word. And in essence, David is saying, look, yes, you've been severely mistreated. But he's saying, look, recovery is possible. You just stay there in Jericho, wait till your beards have grown back. And and he says, and, and then return. And I think what David is just kind of just simply trying to remind them, look, I'm sorry for what happened to you. I know it's caused hurt and shame in your life. However, your beard's going to grow back. It'll grow back. This, this isn't the end of life. It, it was difficulty. It was a setback. But he's saying, look, recovery is possible. And he's saying, and when you recover, then there's going to time for you to return. And, and, and then you just you, you come back and, and things will be restored as they were. And uh, look, I think in some ways, David, as he tells them to stay in Jericho until their beards grow back and then return, kind of remind us as well that David was saying, look, you, you take a little bit of time to recover and then you return. And then you come back and you get to it. And I think sometimes, look, even when something difficult happens to us, first of all, look, recovery is possible. Unless somebody's taken your life, you can recover. You can heal. You can bounce back. And we need to be open. Lord, yes, this happened. But Lord, I, I need to, your help to recover. And, and the Lord is able to recover and to restore. And, and if you need to take a little bit of time to do that, that's fine. But David didn't say just stay in Jericho forever and be angry and embittered and upset about what happened. He said, take a little time to recover and then return back to what you're supposed to be doing. Get back on track. Don't dwell on it forever. Don't continue. Just no. You, take a little time. Once your beard grows back, then you come back and just re-engage in what you're doing here. So David gives them this advice. Verse six says, and then when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, they realized, uh-oh, this was not a good idea. We just poked the king in his eye by doing this and understand the reason is because when you severely insult and mistreat the ambassador or servant of a king well then you've severely insulted the king himself right because the king is the one who sent them they're his representatives and so they know look boy we have not just insulted the king's servants we've offended and assaulted the king who these servants represent And let's always remember that as well, that the king is going to come to defense of his servants here, and the same applies for us and our king. Remember when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church and attacking and harassing Christians? Do you remember Jesus when he broke into Saul's life to rebuke him and to deal with him? He said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting all those Christians? Jesus took it personally. The persecution Saul was bringing against followers of Jesus, Jesus as their king took it personally and he said, Saul, what you're doing to them, you're doing to me. And look, be encouraged. You have a king greater than David, Jesus, and Jesus cares about what happens to you as a servant. And he'll come to your defense. He'll come to your defense and he'll stand behind you and be in support of you and what's happened to you that's harmed you. Jesus takes that personally. And Jesus is more than able to defend and to deal with things. And David's going to deal with things here as the king on behalf of his people. So when the people saw that they had now greatly offended King David and made themselves a repulsive stench in David's nostrils, it says, Hanan and the people of Ammon 
sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia. So they're looking for a kind of a, a, a army to hire out as mercenaries to come and support them because they realize we are in trouble. <laughs> David is going to retaliate and punish us greatly for doing this. Verse 7 says, So they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots with the king of Maaka and his people who came and encamped, it says, before Mediba, and also the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. So they now, and this is very interesting what happens, rather than the king and his servants who fed him this wrong perception of David's servants, when they realized they had done something very foolish and David was very angered and offended at them, rather than just humbling themselves and coming and saying, you know what, we made a major mistake. We misjudged you. We, we jumped to conclusions. We let suspicion get the best of us. And you know what, we blew it. I mean, we, we just falsely accused you of something and we just, we misjudged you and, and, and you know, we, we own it and we're sorry. And, and can we reconcile? Look, I think if they would have come to David and acknowledged that, there would have been a good potential that David potentially, his you know, anger would have been subsided and he potentially would have been open to being gracious and being forgiving as someone who knew the Lord, who was a God who forgives, and they could have been on the road to reconciliation. But instead of acknowledging what they did was wrong, admitting their error and taking ownership for misjudging them in this situation, what instead they do is in stubborn pride rather than refusing or rather than acknowledging what they did, they refuse to do that. And instead they become defensive and they go hire out a bunch of people to get on their side because th that's it. We're just going to fight this battle to the end now. And I look at this and I think, boy, what a fitting analogy of oftentimes what can happen when, you know, look, you know, sometimes we make mistakes. We handle situations wrong. In relationship dynamics, we misjudge somebody. We, you know, are critical in a way we shouldn't be. We let something become in our mind more than it should be. And we kind of realize that we've played the fool. And now we have an opportunity. We can humble ourselves and say, you know what? I was wrong there. And I recognize I was wrong and I want to own up to it and, and I apologize and, and can we seek some reconciliation? Or the other option is to be proud and to be stubborn and just get defensive and say, you know what? I just, I don't want to admit that. So then what I'm going to do, because I need to defend my side here, is I'm going to hire out a whole bunch of mercenaries so I can get a big team on my side so I can make sure I win this battle in the end. And I want to tell you something, I don't mean to be the spoiler in the chapter here, but it ain't going to work. Because when you're on the wrong side, it may take six days, six months, six years, or 60 years, but eventually you're just going to lose. Because when you're on the wrong side of something like that, pride's the downfall. And ultimately, God will let that just destroy you. God will let it ultimately just be something that falls through the cracks. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And here this, this king makes a really poor decision. And on top of it, all kinds of people get hurt and wounded unnecessarily because he chooses to be stubborn and defensive rather than humble and, 
apologetic in the situation. So he hires out all these thousands of mercenaries now, people from other lands coming from Syria and other spots to, to line up in battle array. And verse eight says, now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings had come or by, the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. So, I mean, you now have a massive battlefront now. Literally, we're going to read by the end of the chapter, 50,000 people get killed in this battle. It's a huge battle going on here. All because of what? Here's what's amazing. What a few people said. Whoa! That's a revelation even for the church, isn't it? What a few people said is causing a national conflict now. Something that has blown so far out of proportion here with just misperceptions and the few things people said and somebody bought into it and acted upon it. And wow, now you have this whole major mushroom cloud of something that's unfolded here. I mean, they are lined up ready to engage in a major battle here. Now, before we look at the battle, let me just make one point of application as a general lesson there from just the first you know, eight or nine verses of that chapter. I think one of the greatest lessons that can be gleaned of that chapter is very simply this. Beware who you allow to be the counselors in your life and what people you listen to and what stuff you listen to. The problem that took place here was because Hannon chose to listen to people he shouldn't have listened to. And because of the poor counsel that he listened to and the input of others who were saying things, he ended up acting upon that and making a lot of major mistakes. And I'll tell you something, people who tend to be suspicious, who tend to be kind of critical by nature, nitpickers, people who tend to always find fault in everything and everyone that exists they always just tend to find something wrong with this and some way to criticize that and some way to critique this and just kind of have that kind of temperament i'm telling you those are not good people to listen to in life those are the kind of people that are going to skew your perspective because they have a way to put a spin on everything and everyone and find something negative and wrong with everything and anyone and if you listen to that kind of stuff and you let that be the kind of the counselors in your life and the kind of stuff you listen to and listen to the wrong kind of people you're really going to end up making a lot of poor decisions in life and and, and hannon here just because of wrong counselors made some really really bad decisions created a lot of problems for himself unnecessarily and caused a lot of people to get hurt in the process so again just encourage you be very very careful who you make the counselors in your life and who you listen to in given situations. So verse 10 says, when Joab, David's general, saw the battle line, was against him, notice, before and behind. So they're, they're surrounded now because this army is so big. There's people before them and behind them. He chose some of Israel's best, put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. So Joab comes up with this military strategy. He takes some of his best fighting men. He engages them against the Syrians. 
And then he turns to Abishai, who was his brother and a comrade in, in, in the army, and he says, look, you take a group of soldiers and you go and you do battle against the people of Ammon. And then verse 12, he said to him, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. So in essence, Joab's advice here, and kind of good advice, interesting to see. I love the military camaraderie and loyalty together in battles here that exist. In essence, he says, look, ultimately we're fighting the exact same enemy. It's, it's Hanan, who's, who's the ultimate enemy. Yes, there are different people who've come and, and they're parts of, you know, those who are kind of are representatives of the, our enemy, but ultimately we're all fighting the same enemy, says to Abishai. So he says, look, since we're all fighting the same enemy, even on different battlefronts, he says, we need to help each other. So he puts out this advice. He says, look, if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I'll come help you. If the Syrians are too strong for me and I'm being overtaken, then you come and you reinforce and support and help me. And just this beautiful heart attitude here of, look, we are put together. We're part of the same army and we're fighting the same enemy. So we need to help each other. We need to support one another and sustain one another. We're not competing against each other. We're, you know, let, let's not turn and fight against one another. We got our, enough of an enemy. We got to fight off ourselves. Let's instead be helpful and supportive. And just a beautiful illustration here, I think, of even just the spiritual life, because the Bible tells us that we as well are involved in a spiritual war, spiritual warfare against the enemy of our soul. And a, a war is made up of many different battles, and we're all ultimately fighting against the same enemy. Different battles and different places, but it's ultimately the same enemy. And look, because we're fighting a common spiritual enemy, we need to help one another as God's people. As good soldiers of Jesus Christ, we need to have the same heart attitude here that Joab recommends. Look, if things are too strong for you, then I'll come help you. But if things are, are, are you know, too difficult for me, then you need to come and help me. And kind of this mutual support and sustaining one another. We need each other to overcome in our battles. We can't survive independently. And it's important for us to recognize instead of fighting against each other and being critical and harsh and unkind to each other as Christians sometimes, instead we should realize that we actually need one another and we should be supporting and standing behind one another providing help to overcome i love galatians 6 where it says there if somebody's overtaken spiritually the person who's spiritually mature should seek to restore such a person not crush him and finish him off that's what we do a lot of times in the body of christ somebody fails and we shoot our own wounded Instead, when somebody fails, we should rally to them and now that they've been overtaken, try and restore them, try and help them, try and get them back on track. So as in Galatians 6 as well, that we should bear one another's burden. So if somebody's under a heavy burden, we should see that burden and say, yeah, how can I step in and, and alleviate some of that burden off of that brother? Alleviate some of the burden off of that sister. I can see they're struggling. They're, they're kind of losing ground. They're losing in the battle. How can I step into that and engage and help them. Look, there are going to be times in your life where you are doing well and you're strong and, and therefore you're going to see someone else struggling and you know what? In those times, you should step in and provide the support that they need and help somebody else because there are going to be times in your life where maybe you're losing the battle and, and when you're weakened or where you're kind of being overcome and those are the times where you know what? Hopefully, you've established relationships where people are going to step in and help you. 
And we should be doing this as the body of Christ, this kind of same mentality spiritually. If things are too strong for me, he says, then you come help me. And he says, and I promise you, if things are too strong for you, I'm going to step in and help you out. Just a beautiful, beautiful picture there. And then verse 13, he gives this exhortation, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his Sight. So notice, his exhortation is kind of a reminder that in the battlefront situation, when there was an opportunity to engage in the battle here, there was going to be a joint participation between their personal responsibility to go out and fight the battle. That's why he says, be strong, be brave. You exercise courage, he says, and be strong in battle, fight a good war. And he says, but the other side of that is just really just trusting and accepting that God's going to be involved in trusting God's outcome, he says, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. And in the same way in our lives, when opportunities present themselves to engage in something, when we find ourselves fighting something, battling against something, there's kind of this, uh, you know, mutual partnership between us and the Lord where we need to do our part and then trust that God will do his part. And both are important. We need to be willing to do our part, to be brave, to have courage, to step into things, and, and, and to put all of our strength and best effort into that. And then we, when we do that, then we just need to trust and kind of commit the rest to the Lord and trust the outcome to Him. May, then may the Lord just do what's good in His sight, and we just kind of trust the result to God. And, and there's something very important about that because he says, the reason is he says, we need to do this for our people and for the cities of our God. In other words, there are people who are going to be impacted by these things. And so it's important for us when we enter into a situation to realize that we have a part, but yet at the end of the day, we just need to trust the Lord to do what's good in his sight and realize, Lord, we can do our part and be strong and brave, but the outcome's up to you. Uh, and may the Lord do what's good in his sight. We kind of just rest in that he determines the outcome in what happens. Well, verse 14 says, So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. Notice, they didn't even engage in battle. They, they ran off. And when the people of Ammon saw the Syrians were then fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city. So Joab then went into Jerusalem. So at this point, the battle plan works. The enemy ends up fleeing, but notice the enemy uh, never gives up easily. Verse 16, it says, Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river. And Shopak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. And when it was told David, he gathered now all Israel, crossed over the Jordan and came upon them and set up in battle array against them. So when David had set up in battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him. And then the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians and also killed Shopak, the commander of the army. And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they then made peace with David and became his servants. So the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore. I guess they weren't <laughs> after that kind of a overthrow in battle. But, you know, kind of sad. Again, as I said, you see the magnitude of how many people lost their lives, the tremendous loss that happened as a result of these 
poor decisions and actions. And verse 19 says, when the servants of Hadadezer saw they were defeated, then they made peace with David. If they would have just saw that sooner, but they, they had to wait until they were utterly defeated to then make peace with David and become his servants. And you know, I look at this scene here and it just reminds me of how in the same way King David had to defeat them to bring them into a place where they would be at peace with him and they would submit to his rulership and serve his purposes. You know, I, I do think sometimes in our lives that sometimes the one greater than David, Jesus, King of Kings, that sometimes, you know, the Lord kind of almost just has to defeat us as human beings. And he just has to completely defeat us to make us come to a place where we're in right relationship with him. And it's almost like he has to fight our resistance, fight our resistance. <laughs> okay, what, whatever it takes, listen, ultimately you can take Jesus on. You are going to tap out. It's not going to work. You're never going to win a wrestling match against the Lord or a battle against the Lord. Ultimately, he is going to defeat us and all of our resistance. And it's for our own good. He doesn't defeat us to ruin our lives. He defeats us to, to do really a picture of what here, to be at peace with him and become his servant, a picture of salvation. We make peace with God, and then we serve Jesus as our king the way that we rightfully should. And sometimes the Lord has to bring us to that place where he kind of has to humble and defeat us to put us into a right relationship with him. Well, chapter 20, just a short chapter, we'll look at that and conclude. It says, it happened then in the spring of the year at the time kings go out to battle that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David, it says, stayed at Jerusalem and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. So notice, after they conquer, it tells us in the prior verses, the Syrians, they then still deal with the people of Ammon. And now we see that happening in verse 1 of chapter 20 here. David kind of regroups, and he still needs to deal with the people of Ammon for the great offense and thing that they had done wrong and the battle that they had engaged. So now it says that Joab leads out the army and it happened that they went out to battle. It says, in the spring of the year, verse 1, at the time when kings go out to battle. Now, in that culture, typically the winter rains and the wet season was in the winter, which caused you know passageways to be all muddied and, and difficult to, to transition through. You'd get stuck and bogged down with your chariots in the mud and your horses and so forth. Plus, it was miserable weather, and you didn't want to be out fighting a battle when you should be taking care of your crops, whether you were sowing or reaping. So they actually had a time of year when battle took place. It was in the spring when things dried up, when the weather was a little nicer, when it was a time when they didn't have to be concerned about being away from their fields. That was the time typically when battles and warfare took place, the time when kings go out to battle and Joab goes out and engages in the battle. But verse 1 says, David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, the writer of Chronicles chooses to eliminate the record here of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, which tell us that it was at this time when David chose to stay off the battlefield and he disengaged when he should have been out fighting the Lord's battles. That's when the whole Bathsheba failure took place with David's life. 
at a time when David should have been out on the battlefield being productive, being occupied, being engaged in what he should be engaged in when he for whatever reason chose to stay at home, to not be occupied, to have a lot of extra idle time on his hands and there was not enough for him to be doing and he was occupied and engaged as he should have been, that was when David got in trouble. That was when he found himself susceptible to the temptations of the devil and the traps and snares of the devil which caused him to yield to his own sinful flesh. And he ends up getting into the immoral relationship with Bathsheba and conceiving the child and then ultimately having to murder Uriah, the husband. We know the whole story there. But again, just another reminder, perhaps the Lord here is just showing us how gracious he is that he doesn't you know, uncover and have to deal with this whole episode again in David's life, but just a subtle reminder here that when we disengage from what we should be doing and we're not occupied the way that we should be, we have too much time on our hands, we're not being productive, that always is a risk for us to end up engaging in things we should not get engaged in. And to end up potentially falling prey to the temptations of the devil, staying active and doing things for the Lord and moving forward to conquer, I tell you, that is a safeguard. Staying occupied is one of the greatest safeguards to avoid sin in your life. Just staying productive, too busy to end up getting into things that you shouldn't be involved in. Avoid a lot of regrets. Regrets. Verse 2 says, So David then took their king's crown from his head after Joab conquered the people and defeated on David's behalf and overthrew them. David, interesting, he takes the crown on his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold. Now that's 75 pounds of talent. So that's a heavy crown. Probably this wasn't an everyday crown. This was probably just more for the photo shoot uh, because there's no way your head could endure that, your neck long-term, a 75-pound talent uh, gold crown, which also had precious stones and it was set on David's head. And he also brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it. And then David put them to work with saws and with iron picks and with axes. So David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. And then David and all Jerusalem, or all the people, excuse me, returned back to Jerusalem. So notice what happens. Does David do anything to participate in the battle? Nothing, right? David, during this whole time, Joab is out fighting the battle for him, which David should have been out leading the charge as the king, the time when kings go out to battle. David is at a time when he's not in right relationship with the Lord. And this whole episode's going on with Bathsheba and the cover-up and all that, you know, season of time when he's not in right relationship with God. And it's during this same time when he's not in right relationship with God, all he does is he shows up for the photo shoot. He just shows up, they put the crown on his head he maintains a good image and then what does he do then he subjects the people it says to hard labor with saws and iron picks and iron you know iron picks and with axes and again you kind of have this picture here of david where the main thing he's concerned about is two things his outward image and mistreating people and interesting it's at a time in david's life when he's not in right relationship with the lord And I'll tell you, one of the clear indications and one of the symptomatic effects of times when we are not in relationship with the Lord is those two things tend to be the byproduct. We put a major focus on maintaining an outward image, which isn't really true about us because we want to keep our image outwardly, and we treat people horrible. 
It's one of the greatest indications usually things aren't right between us and the Lord. Rather than be sincere and walk in integrity, we're just trying to uphold an image outwardly and we're just starting to treat people horribly. We're being cruel and mistreating people. David here doing this, verse 4 says, Now it happened afterward, war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibachai the Hushite, or Hushathite, killed Sippai, great names here, huh? Who was one of the sons, now watch this, one of the sons of the giant. We're talking about Goliath, and they were subdued. Again, verse 5, there was war with the Philistines. And Alhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. So interesting, he had a brother, Goliath did, whose shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, quite lengthy. Verse 6, yet again, there was war at Gath when there was a man of great stature with 24 fingers and toes. The idea is six on each hand, six on each foot. And he also was born to the giant, a son of the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, killed him. And these were born to the giant in Gath. And I like verse 8. They fell by the hand of David and by the hand of David's servants. Now, interesting to take this little account here the Holy Spirit gives to us of a few occasions where wars break out with the Philistines and some of the descendants of Goliath, brothers and children, who apparently had that same genetic, uh, you know, kind of, you know, disposition where they grew incredibly large, like Goliath, who we know that story most famously of David and Goliath, uh, they engage in battles, and interestingly here, we don't see David directly slaying and killing these giants. We see those who were David's servants. And it says here that David's servants were taking out the hand by their hands these giants in the same way that David did. And there's this beautiful picture here of this reality, how those who spent time with David, who was a giant killer, ultimately became giant killers themselves. You know, when these men first came to David, who became his men that fought with him, the Bible says they were men who were in distress, in debt, they were discontent, they were a mess. But they spent time with David. And because they spent time with David, they became like David. And now we see them doing the same exploits as David. And not only was David a giant killer, but the Bible tells us, though they don't get as much press, that there were men who weren't quite as well known as David who were slaying giants just like David did. In other words, because they spent time with David, they actually developed the same spirit as David and they learned the ways and patterns of David and they started accomplishing the same things that David did. They became giant killers just like him because they spent time with him. And the reminder for us is this. In the same way as you and I spend time with one greater than David, with Jesus, we become like Jesus. We develop the same spirit as Jesus, the same desires as Jesus, and we ultimately start to live and conduct ourselves and accomplish the same things that our Lord Jesus did by simply spending time with Jesus. The more you spend time with Jesus, the more you become like Jesus, and the wonderful thing is you start accomplishing victories by your fellowship and relationship with the Lord and by your ability to just embody who he is by letting him work through your life. And just like David's servants here, we begin to represent our Lord in much the same way. Why don't we stand together? Let's pray.